Was was he a philanthropist? And was he known? Did he, you know, have charities? Was did he give money away to philanthropy? The the um, when my book came out, one of the first people who asked if she if I could come meet with her was. I'm sure she wouldn't mind my saying this now. It's been a long time. But Susan Beresford, who was president of the Ford Foundation in New York, you know, wanted to meet me, which was great. I mean, I had spent my whole career as a fundraiser for various nonprofits. I never got to meet Susan Beresford until she asked me to come and talk about my book. But um, no, the philanthropy... Um, well, only recently, one of his, I believe one of his family members has joined the Ford Foundation, but it wasn't, it wasn't created by him, by him personally. Um, he did um, subsidize, either him or the company uh, subsidized, I believe, the hospital, the hospital and other institutions out there. But no, he was not. In other words, the Ford Foundation of today is not, is not the Henry Ford of, the, of yesteryear at all. So he, he's obviously um, very influential in, and now you have um, a very different Jewish community, organized Jewish community back then yeah. you have. Obviously, uh, today we had uh, interviewed um, Professor Berenson, who wrote about the Messina blood libel. In yes, the- I saw that. And he, I saw that too. He, he, had, he said that, you know, one of the influences for that was obviously Henry Ford, but the whole, you know, fledgling Jewish organization, some leading figures, rabbis, how did they respond to Henry Ford? Yeah, I'm glad you asked me that ahead of time so I could look up because the the whole, the, the one of the most, um, in, in, in retrospect and even now thinking about the, it wasn't like the entire Jewish community got together or rallied around and decided to go up against Henry Ford because, um, and even now, you know, just fast forwarding, you have, I remember when I went to the, to visit, I went to all the different, you know, the American Jewish Congress, the American Jewish Committee, I went all around to talk to people. I went to the Anti-Defamation League, um, uh, which had just basically just been invented, created. And a lot of these organizations, were in their infancy or they were run by, let's shall we say the the German, the the German Jews, as opposed, you know, the 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 East, the Ostjuden were the disenfranchised that came later, that was a the scourge, the Red Scare and all that. There was this, so there was, and there was this very, it was a very fragmented kind of um situation among the Jewish community, which was more like a mosaic, I guess, or than a community. But but finally it took um, the publication, what Henry, what happened was Henry Ford published, eventually he published an anthology. He took all these articles from the Dearborn Independent and he made a little pamphlet called The International Jew, The World's Problem which caught the attention of Hitler, which we could talk, we can talk about that after this segment. But, but um, that was when the, I made a list of all the, just read quickly, the Zionist Organization of America, the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, the Union of Orthodox Hebrew Congregations, United Synagogues of America, Provisional Organization of the American Jewish Congress, B'nai B'rith, 
Central Conference of American Rabbis, Rabbinical Assembly of the Jewish Theological Seminary, da, 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 da. on behalf of the American Jewish Committee, managed to round up all of these diverse organizations, and uh, they published uh, an article in the day called the day. It was in the, the newspaper called the day. Their tug, which I think was a Lower East Side newspaper. On December 2nd, 1920, the stupid slander against the Jews. We can only answer with a smile of contempt. We cannot, we are firm that stupidity cannot triumph. So the first step was this unified, in a sense, unified, um, you know, a response in kind to a newspaper by an editorial in a newspaper saying that Henry Ford was stupid. Then it took more time to develop a sense of actual indignation to the point where he was sued by Aaron Sapiro, who was a, a Jewish labor organizer that was slandered by Henry Ford because Ford went ballistic when he found out that farmers were being organized by Jews. I mean, that was just the, the, the to tie it back to his growing up. I mean, the ultimate indignity was to have Farmers in California, like sort of a Cesar Chavez situation, except, you know, it was back then uh, that farmers would be organized by a Jew. So he slandered. He went on a whole full full out campaign against Aaron Sapiro in the in the Dearborn Independent. And Aaron Sapiro was the one who bought suit against him. And he went on trial. It's all in the book. I don't think we should go into detail. But in fact, eventually he apologized. Okay, well, we'll get that in a sec. So, so there's nothing like boycott. When I was raised, I was raised by a by a survivor. My father bless <clears throat> ran. Obviously, a German car was you know no German cars, no German appliances, the whole whole gamut. But even Ford was a little bit you know. Should we get a you know a Ford? You know, we kind of knew that Ford his background, and even a Ford car was something that, uh, if I remember as a child, was something that. Maybe we should stay away from Ford cars. But I, I would take it that boycotts and things like that just didn't happen in that period. It wasn't something that the Jewish community was organized enough to do something. No, I, I have to say, and I again, I went back to make sure how I felt about this because, and that's a subject for another, I think, really interesting conversation in some other time and place. But, you know, what what does the Jewish community mean now and and what did it mean then more more coherently what did it mean then um because you also had which i totally had forgotten about but the other wild card was the zionist movement and you know um by which i mean that <clears throat> in the jewish community at that time there was also a debate about the home where 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 there should be a home or shouldn't be a home and where should it be? And if you did believe that we should go there, then you were this of this persuasion. If you didn't, it were another. And, you know, combining that with the Eastern, the influx and the, the sort of um, the streets are paved with gold uh, and the steerage and the people coming over looking at the Statue of Liberty with no money. And, you know, my grandfather, people saying my grandfather came here with like an apple or whatever. <laughs> And then you have the, you know, on the other side, you have the, the, the German sort of our crowd group. So this is a very volatile um, 
Oh, and then you have also at the same time the red scare, and then you have the race consciousness of, of, uh, of, uh, you know, like the sort of Luther Burbank interpretation of the race as a consciousness thing in America, very, very powerful, and the Aryanism, and, you know, who does this country belong to? This is like a, and the melting pot and Israel Zangwill's concept. You have this, this very volatile and inconsistent view of, of the Jewish community. So it's remarkable. It, in fact, it now in retrospect, the fact that it end up, ended up being a, a guy who Henry Ford slandered, he made the mistake of slandering a very intelligent, educated Jewish lawyer who was trying to organize farmers. And that was a big mistake. So that's how it, that was kind of like the tinderbox, if you will. And, and, and the affinity, if that's the right word, to, to Adolf Hitler, at least Hitler's um, uh, for Ford, did, did Ford embrace that? Or was that already a little bit too much? Um, you know, Hitler, you know. No, it's not too much. As a matter of fact, and I like the way you held up my book. That's very, very nice. Of you. <laughs> so I think, as I told you, um, uh, last, it's been three years, but um, uh, the editor of a very important journal in Paris, the Revue d'Histoire de la Shoah, of the Shoah, um, was putting together an issue on the intellectual origins of Mein Kampf. And he had read my book, Henry Ford and the Jews, and he asked me to, they wanted to translate a section of it, and they asked me to to write a little introduction to the translation. I thought I might send that to you. Maybe you could put it up on the... Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's very short. But the reason I bring that up is because... <clears throat> okay. Um, the International Jew was translated into German in the late 20s, early 30s. And a New York Times reporter who was visiting, uh, wanted to interview Hitler in 33. This was before he had reached his apex by any means. And he went up the little stairs to, to uh, Hitler's very modest storefront headquarters on the second floor of this little building. And he had to wait in the waiting room uh, before Hitler was ready to see him. And on the table, like, you know, like if you go to the dentist and there's magazines or something like that. So on the table was, was Ford's International Jew pamphlet in, on the table in Hitler's waiting room. And when he went into Hitler's um, little office, a portrait of Henry Ford was hanging on the wall, like, behind, like, like back there behind you, like where you're, where you're sitting there. Um, and when mine, but, but, but the fact is that 10 years before, I believe it was 1924 when Mein Kampf was published, I might be off by a few years, but the only American name mentioned in, in Mein Kampf is Henry Ford. The only one. Henry Ford, something like Henry Ford is the only man who understands what I'm talking about, you know, when it comes to the Jews, etc. So I don't. And then, and as you may know, in 1938, uh, Ford received the Cross of the German Eagle, which is the highest award that any foreigner can receive from the, at that time, Nazi government. Okay, but if you asked me 
or I have been asked, do I think that Ford was a uh, public public advocate of mass in, in, uh, in, um, of uh, the Holocaust? Do I think he was a public advocate of mass extermination? No, I do not think that. I do know that when he watched the first documentaries that came out of the concentration camps when they were liberated, they were screened at his in his screening room at the factory and he leapt up from his chair and ran out of the room and, and had some kind of nervous attack at the time. But I, I, I wanna make the point, I guess I feel it's important that I think Hitler's, Hitler's admiration for Ford, which gave, which gave birth to the Volkswagen, which was how the Volkswagen became, the concept of the Volkswagen was derived from the Ford and Hitler knew of Ford's beliefs and his lieutenants published the translation of the international Jew in Germany. I think these are all facts of history that we can, we can decide on how much alchemy we want to make out of it. And, and uh, obviously you, you, you mentioned there's the lawsuit, there's an apology. Was, yeah. there, was there a dialogue between the Jewish community and, and Ford, uh, apology only came because of the lawsuit and the fact that he was forced to, no, no, no dialogue? No, the thing is, there's one other reason, and this goes back to my, what I said about his platform being the car, which I'd never thought of until I was getting ready for this conversation. I went back to look at that. So during the trial, when it wasn't going too well, when, his, when um, Ford was saying, was coming out with his quotes, like history is more or less bunk, and you know he couldn't remember anything, and the, his his defense was that, which is very there's something very telling about this in today's world. Well, you know that newspaper, Mr. Ford didn't really even look at that newspaper when it was being published. He would stop by in the office and you know cast an eye over the thing. But he, Mr. Ford, wasn't really like the main driving force of what was in that newspaper, every single word and such and such and such. Um, but um, so there was that attempt to distance himself. But when he saw that it wasn't going well, he burst into the office like toward the end of the trial and said, we have to stop this anti-Semitism right now. He just, he said it like that, sort of like, you know, okay, turn off the faucet now. Like that, that's the way he'd said things to people. He would burst into the office like a kamikaze, you know, this has to stop now. He was very mercurial. But he also, I feel like I, I sort of connected this. He wanted to launch a new car, a new model car. I think the A actually. Um, and he saw, as I said to you before, prior, he saw the connection between his platform and it being possibly undermined and him being embarrassed and the story was getting out and it was in the New York Times, you know, it was like picked up, you know how it is. And he realized that he had to stop this anti-Semitism if he was gonna start a new car. So I'm not, and then he went to New York and he met one time with Louis Mar Marshall, Louis Marshall, who was the um, chairman of the American Jewish Committee. Um, they, they had a public, you know, like a photo op you might say, where they shook hands and sort of like 
buried the hatchet, I mean, ostensibly, but, um, and he made a few statements about how he was not against the Jews and he did not hate the Jews and he sort of backed down from his very public inflagration. But of course he can maintain his, he did maintain his views, but on a much less um, vehement level than before, but still. Now, now we're in the year 2021. Indeed. United States of America. So I, I know that you had mentioned in the phone conversation that you had one view, perhaps that view is, has evolved or has changed, a little bit less optimistic perhaps, but 2021, Henry Ford, what, what do we know? What do we learn? What should young people take out of all of this? Yeah. No, that's very important. And I'm going to send you my, I wrote this, uh, I won't read it out, the whole thing, but I wrote, um, about three years ago, I wrote, and I'm sending this to you because I wrote this, I sent in an op-ed piece to the Times and it wasn't published, so that's fine. I still have the rights to this piece. It's called Confessions of a Revisionist Historian. Trump made me do it. That's the title of it. Um. But my point is that the <clears throat> at the end of my book, which I wrote on September 13th, 2001, by the way, 9-13-2001, was when I was still writing. My book was like on its way to the publisher when the Twin Towers were attacked. So two days later, I wrote that Similar behavior on the scale of Henry Ford's manifested today by a figure with equal public visibility and power is well nigh inconceivable. I wrote that, that's 20, 20 it'll be 20 years. Um, I based that on a whole bunch of surveys at the time by the Southern, what is it called? The Southern agency, the agency that, the law agency that does the, keeps track of anti-Semitic um, incidents in the in the in, in the country it was at a low ebb and I guess it was a time of feeling like unity unity coming together one country yes 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 absolutely and the book I wrote after that which I wrote in reaction to um 9-11 was called the American Revelation and I began it with a quote from from Senator Moynihan that Americans are the most idealistic people in the world. But again, um, so looking back, this I wrote right after Charlottesville. I said, looking back from this post-Charlottesville vantage point, I realized my historian's objectivity was swayed in the wake of 9-11. I had been traumatized into living with hope. And um, I think that you know, a lot of the sort of insidious and ignorant objectification of not just Jews, but sort of the whole America first rubric and which Lindbergh actually gave a speech about in, as you, as you know, I mean, America first was not invented by Trump. America first was invented, was, was the Lindbergh mantra, which Ford totally embraced and so we have a situation now where it doesn't even have it doesn't have to be just the jews but not only jews but 
all um, perceived non-Americans are up for stigmatizing and persecution and marginalizing and this, as we used, as I used to say when I was in the university, alterity. I mean, you know, the whole idea of Orientalism and having a having to have a target, uh, an objectified target that's not you that you can dump all your blame onto. I think that we have that, unfortunately. Um, any any other closing comments summary that you want? Yeah, I do have one thing, and you mentioned about talking to younger people. Um, which I always like to do and I always have done my whole life. I mean, by younger, I mean 18 to 22. <laughs> but I also have grandchildren. Okay, so... Um, I, have, uh, I have three of them at home, 18. Yeah, no, it's... So I have three of them at home, so I, yes, I... Um, uh, what was I going to say? Hold on. Young people. Young people. Um... Yeah, it's very important to, I think it has to, it has to do with, with when I used to teach history majors at, at the university at Montclair State, when I, I started out as a history professor there, um, <clears throat> and I used to talk to my students about why his, history, maybe they didn't really know what history really was. Like, that's why they didn't like it. They, you know, it's boring, etc. Oh, history is boring. It's just a bunch of dates. And I don't want to have to memorize this war and that, this proclamation and this and that and the other. Sort of like, um, oh, like the play, The History Boys. When the teacher says, boys, history is just one damn thing after another. You know, and that's what you have to learn for the elected to take your exams, et cetera. Well, so I try to, in, in, these, these la in these last 20 years that I've written these two different perspectives on the book that I originally wrote, where I was so confident of my approach, like at the end of the book, I said like, but this is it. And this was, a, this, that was then, and this is now, and it'll never happen again. And I feel like it's much more important now for, for people to understand history as um, you learn from the way it changes. And I think it has to do with, I don't mean to sound like if you're too young, you won't get that point. And maybe it's something you should tell kids when they're younger. So when they get to be ancient like me, you know, they'll realize because the fact that when I talk about my book and, and people say, well, like you just asked me, I talk about how I since have published basically a a revised conclusion to my book that I published that I felt I was right at the time. And then in the very next book was a book about the idealism, the permanent idealistic roots of America. And then we have lived through the last four years. So it makes you start to realize that it's very important to hold to beliefs that you have at the time, but you also have to be willing to accede to further circumstances that come along and not let it, not let it, you know, on my worst days, I feel like, oh my God, I made a mistake in the book. No, that's not, I didn't make a mistake right. in the no, book. No, right. Fascinating. Okay. Um, again, um, Henry Ford and the Jews, the um, mass production of hate uh, can be purchased on uh, Amazon or your local bookstore and 
We just want to again thank Professor Bobo. This has been insightful, fascinating, and uh, we appreciate your time that you took today. Thank you very much.